Hello there, welcome back. Uh, PTC Podcast, myself and Chris are with Dan Lawrence today. Dan is a actual second time guest, even though our new improved podcast is only six episodes long, uh, old. Um, Dan, you've been here before, not here, here, but you've been on this prestigious <laughs> communication channel before. We've been changing faces. You met me and Matt last time. How are you doing anyway? Very well, thanks. Thanks for having me again. Funny enough, the first podcast I ever featured on was your guys last time. So uh, thank you for that. That's Very nice. Very nice. That was a long time ago it as well. That was a while ago. It was a good few years. We are, that was 2016, maybe 17. Yeah. Um, yeah, me and Matt. It's still down on the list if anyone wants to scroll back. I don't know what number it was. I'm sure we'll cover very v- different things but also your main thing is boxing and I spotted that you're in Dubai yesterday and I was like mate Chris is in town for two more days before he goes so let's get in and have a chat and here we are always good to catch up with you guys yeah the boxing so one of the roles is head of performance at matchroom boxing if there's any avid boxing fans listening and uh, yeah blessed to work with some incredible incredible fighters who are you working us, with? Uh, tell us your most recent I suppose wins from from the boxing strength and conditioning realm we actually had a couple last Saturday and uh, over in Liverpool with a guy, Connor Ben and Joe Cordina, former Rio Olympian. Uh, Joe won pretty much a shutout, 10 rounds, and hopefully he's going to box for the IBF world title in his next fight. Very silky boxer and a great guy from Cardiff. And uh, Connor Ben, he's uh, yeah son of Nigel Ben, former, I think, middleweight and super middleweight champion, bit of a living legend in the UK, great personality. Now resides in Australia, but was back for Connor's last fight. And uh, Connor had a career best performance against Chris Algeria, former world champion, who's been in the ring with the likes of Errol Spence, Manny Pacquiao, and uh, yeah, Connor. <laughs> Connor was insane. It, it was just an incredible performance. He stopped him, I think, in the fourth or fifth round. Uh, yeah, one of the show real knockouts. I won't say too much. You know, I'm, I'm actually a fan of Chris Algeria. He's got. <laughs> I purchased one of his books. He's a really good nutritionist, and uh, yeah, it was quite hard to see. He was down on the floor for a while, but you know, thankfully he's uh, safe and well, and. Uh, yeah, we're we're very happy as a team because that was a lot of hard work that came to came to light on December the twelfth in Liverpool. That's awesome. What um, w- then? I suppose tell people because old school boxing kind of training tactics. I I envisioned them a bit like uh, jockey tactics, like the old school jockey tactics, making weight and maybe puking on the weighing scales trying to get into weight and that kind of but <laughs> <laughs> literally in I the most in dan's face in recent years and it's become very evident that jockeys have really got <laughs> control but jockeys have really got control of their nutrition side of things and i've seen boxing the trends in boxing come along fantastically so mm. Give us a bit more insight into the strength and conditioning preparations for a fight and the nutritional kind of preparations in terms of making weight and stuff like that. Yeah, I'll give you a broad overview. I think fundamentally we're in a sport that's governed by making weight. So we can look at optimizing and improving athletic qualities, but unless our fighter makes weight, then they're not going to fight. So we look at a lot of the research, great research by uh, James Morton at LMJU. He's got a research paper, Fuel for the Work Required, required, and it does what it says on the tin. So we can look at high and low days from a fueling point of view and then merge that hand in glove with our training outputs and expenditures. So um, we, yeah, we we look at obviously obviously nutrition plays such a key role. And thankfully the fighters that I just mentioned there in the last fight is very relevant, so I'll talk about it. They, They really do take ownership of their nutrition. Um, obviously I I guide them we build a framework around that and we as ever would reverse engineer the process once we have a fight night so for example December the 12th just been we know we're fighting we know how many rounds it is we know they're coming into camp weight and we know the fight weight that they have to be you know on the Friday before the Saturday night fight night so Conor Ben uh, 10 stone 7 for example 147 pounds he'd walk into the camp at x weight and then we put a strategy in place this is the way we'd like to be each week so it's not you know last two weeks which it has been in the past the old school methods oh can i swear on this yeah Yeah. Yeah. go for it (laughs) (laughs) oh shit you know i've now got to lose let's just say two stone and you know you crash and then obviously there's negative impacts there in terms of hydration as well um and and how that can influence performance so yeah we we very much look at it from a, a day one of camp but we also have an out of camp strategy we kind of have 
the first four weeks of camp being fat camp, you know, because otherwise we're not going to optimize any of the other qualities that we're looking to achieve. So, um, yeah, some of the methods that, that we use, we, we get them to a certain weight and then on fight week we might manipulate a number of variables, uh, you know, carbohydrates being being one of them because of the, you know, the holding of water, uh, fiber being another one that we manipulate. And um, the last water is another one as well. Uh, but we, again, we've got to look at that in a, in a very strategic way. Um, and uh, and yeah, we don't do the, I suppose an old school method that comes to mind would be like the sweatsuits. Um, we do active and passive dehydration, you know, 24 hours before the weigh-in if we need to. Um, so active dehydration might be a sweatsuit and some fighters may prefer to run though because of the eccentric stress of running we can also buy us a cross trainer or a bike and, uh, and just get that, that last little bit of water weight off which we're fine with. We're fine using a sweatsuit in that kind of acute instance but if they're doing that three four weeks out from a fight then we've got a real issue there because you're not going to manipulate weight you're actually just dehydrating yourself which again can impact you know cognitive function and everything else that kind of comes with that uh, and then post weigh-in we look to obviously put in what we've lost and uh, we have a strategy around that around you know carbohydrate intake uh, liquids initially and then just build them back up to a sufficient weight uh, we tend to work around 12 grams per kilo of body weight so to put that into context how's my maths Connor Ben's weighed in at 147 pounds 10 stone 7 so I believe he'd be replenishing with around 800 grams of carbohydrates from the moment of weigh-in to fight night but again everyone's different that's a broad overview What's That's the time on uh, So say they weigh in at 1 o'clock on a Friday. Connor was main event 10pm on, on the Saturday. So, yeah, they get quite, quite a wind, I don't, 12 don't grams, 12 grams of carbohydrates per, kilo per kilogram body so weight. So say that's, I think off the top of my head, because it is so relevant, it's 804 grams for Connor on the basis of that um, equation. But again, this is where you don't just take the, the literature. You have to understand your athletes yeah. as well. So yeah. normally people probably listening now would say, well, that's 400 grams a day. Okay, we can work that out. Well, no, because a fighter on fight day is not going to consume 400 grams of carbohydrate because they think, think they're going to be too heavy. They're not going to be able to digest it properly. And that's where obviously we look at high and low glycemic index foods and liquids and things to get to those numbers. But my guys can have 200 grams of carbs within the first hour through the liquids, the mortine gels, um, obviously the electrolytes and things that we have. So... Um, yeah getting that down is not not too much of an issue we've just got to look at the quality of food so someone like connor we have an incredible performance chef called daniel Sargent, ds performance chef on the gram if anyone wants to have a look and uh he you know only has the best food and connor's digestion rate because the food is so of such quality is is good so getting the carbs in is, is not an issue we can then look a lot more specific and take a what it's stylistically speaking to the head coach tony sims in this instance stylistically what is this type of fight you know are we looking at standing there and trading with this individual we know mass times acceleration equals force do we want to be coming in a little bit heavier or you know is this a tough 12 round fight that we need to be on our toes we need to be moving around and in that instance it might be then that we don't want to be walking in the ring at quite as heavy as if we're looking to stand and trade so let me let me take it right back why if i weigh 100 kilos yeah yeah just throughout the year why don't i just fight 100 kilos yeah like i know that's a real that's your mm. business so that's like but for people who are listening, like, why do you want to cut weight? And then why do you want to put it back on? What's, what's all this chat of cutting weight about? It's a very good question. And you want to be giving yourself the best competitive advantage as you, you know, walk into the ring. So are you going to be walking around at 100 kilos and going to be in the optimal shape at 100 kilos? Um, likely not. And if you are, you know, then you're going to have a pretty tough year because my guys, you know, they make weight well. But, you know, it's not easier a 10-week training camp. You know, you have to have a strategy behind it. So there's no way if you're 100 kilos a year round that you're going to be walking in the ring at 100 kilos because likely the stressor that you're going to impose upon the system throughout the course of that year is probably going to have you resenting the sport of boxing. Um, we want to, you know, walk around at a specific weight and, uh, and then just cut cut yourself down before replenishing so you walk in that ring at, at the best advantage possible. That said, though, Keith, to kind of better answer the question is, some people try and make weights that they have no right to make. So we look at things like DEXA scans to see whether, you know, the individual can actually make that weight uh, in the safest, looking at bone mineral density and looking at fat in the safest and effective way possible. Um, but yeah, to put yourself at a competitive advantage would probably be the best answer to the question. So why don't I just fight another guy who's 100 kilos? Do you know what I mean? Like So... But we'll <laughs> Put it this way, if you've got a guy walking around at 115 kilos general walk-around weight, they have a strategic plan um, with, let's say, the, the fight being in eight weeks' time, um, then 
they're going to graduate. Likely, you're not walking around 100 kilos at 5% body fat, are you? Right. Well, well I don't know, are you? No, um, I'm not. <laughs> I'm also not 100 kilos. Well, I just, in case you got into maths here, I'm like, I, can, I can work with 100. Yeah, yeah, it's a nice round number. Good. Um, yes, so like, yeah, you just, it, well, based on anyone, you know, you're not going to be down at that that percentage body fat. And if you I, think, I think you mentioned it well, and you said the high performance element, right? So the, in layman's terms, the best way I can think of it is these WBFFs or the the photo shoot guys they're not there 24-7 365 mm. they're there for one maybe two three photo shoots a year yeah. right so I presume Very, it's a and great I'm assuming way this, is, it, yeah. this is the this is the same kind of so that's kind of thing. obviously more aesthetic driven but you've just seen a picture I showed you a couple of pictures of some of my lads on the scales you know body composition wise they look incredible men's health front cover type Though the goal is not aesthetics, the goal is obviously performance. A byproduct of that is aesthetics, and um, <clears throat> you're completely right. Is if you've ever been around a bodybuilder on competition week or a fighter on fight week, you'll know that you know that's not a strategy that they can have throughout the course of a year. That's a very acute intervention with a clear outcome-based goal. So they have to put themselves in a position to reach peak performance or look the best they can at a specific time frame. Um, I still don't know if that, I feel like that hasn't fully answered your question. No, I, think, I think what you were saying was, if I'm going to fight a guy who's 115 kilos, he's basically going to trim down mm. 100 kilos for the weigh-in, and then and he's then trying to get his bulk back up in that so short period of time, so he's coming in at, what, 105, yeah. and I'm still just a sloppy 100 because I didn't make any difference. That's a great point. Exactly that is the rehydration strategy. Yeah. He, he could come in heavier than that. You know, Some of my guys would... I'll say it now because he's retired. So former former world champion at the fourth attempt, George Grove, someone I worked with from 2013 onwards. Um, he weigh in at 12 stone, so uh, 168 pounds, super middleweight limit. And George is a very big super middleweight. He could walk in that ring at, he could put on a stone, you know. So then if we're going back to kind of what we said earlier, going full circle is the mass times acceleration. Well, George could whack as well. So if he's got... He fought Chris Eubank again. This apologies if I'm going off piece for anyone who's not interested in boxing, but he fought Chris Eubank. Chris Eubank was naturally a middleweight who stepped up to super middleweight. So Chris looked great aesthetically, but really his rehydration strategy. And I may be wrong here. This is just a general. Um, I'm pretty sure I'm, I'm, I'm not wrong on this. Actually, is that his rehydration wouldn't have gone in much above the middleweight limit. He might have rehydrated to a super middleweight. Probably that that's more than likely. George might have rehydrate to a light heavyweight he would have been a lot heavier in that ring and that would have come you know he would have felt that power for sure so i think you're right it's the rehydration that comes with it if you're sitting at 100 you're then not going to rehydrate to 108 yeah, or 19 yeah. because you're going to feel sluggish yeah um so something we say for our guys is what's the best lot like when when you're kind of tapering off and coming to your last spa what weight are you that you feel your best at your last spa well that's probably pretty close to what we want you walking that in that ring at once we take we manipulate the fiber we manipulate manipulate the sodium, manipulate the water, and potentially last resort, manipulate the caloric yeah, restriction uh, on fight week, which in this instance with Connor, we didn't actually have to do because we manipulated all the other variables and he made weight. Um, then it's like, okay, now we can put it back in and we want to be in and around that. And now you're competing at the best. Yes, you're basically trying to get the weight down for the scales, for the moment exactly. they're on the scales, and then get them jacked up to as big as they can be. So the, what's the biggest weight, what's the biggest uh, weight cut down that you've been part of? Ooh, um, without saying names. Yeah, without saying specifics. It's been a, a 14 pound cut. So that's a full stone. So what's that? Yeah. 7 kg, 8 kg. <laughs> so what, they drop down from something down by 8 kg, give or take, mm. and then put it back on? Yes, and some. So, really, yeah. But we use the word acutely as well. So this is <laughs> something we say it will only hurt for a minute. It's like you don't want to, like what I said about the sweatsuits, that's an intervention because you know what you're doing. It's an acute intervention. Of manipulating water but you don't want to do that six to eight days out because then you know you, you, it's going to be a very hard last week for that fighter you want to do that in the last minute so it might be a very hard last 24 hours for some fighters if they are you know 10 pounds 12 pounds over um, thankfully we have a strategy that we try not to allow that to happen you know because our strategy starts from the moment we get a fight we put the the steps in place each week of where we think the fighter should be in and around two markers and if they're outside of that four weeks out then we need to you know recalibrate right. or make them work harder at that point and maybe manipulate some variables from an intake and an expenditure point of view and then 
we can look at saying, okay, now we've got, let's just say, 12 to 14 pounds, which again, is that was an outlier case, but we made weight safely and effectively. Um, then it's active dehydration that we've spoken about, the treadmill, the sweatsuit. And then we can look at passive dehydration techniques as well, which might be, you know, a bath um, and a wrap. So we'd, we'd get a bath at off the top of my head anywhere between 108 to 113 degrees um, we'd do probably a 10 minute bath and then we'd have the wrap waiting for them uh, put them in a dressing gown put them in a wrap wrap them up like <laughs> best visual representation of this is like a human burrito um, you know manage them they perspirate we sorry we dry them off put them in that they continue perspiration rate for maybe another 10 minutes depending on the cut and then again we do dry them down do a check weight see where they're at and then potentially go again if if it needed to be a you know, pretty full-on cut, but look, I'm not an advocate for that. I think the UFC is certainly something that uh, does that a lot more than boxing. We try and follow, you know, very much a um, an outcome-led approach with clear steps in place that's driven by science. You know, I safety first, the fundamental. Yes, we want to win, we want to get our arm, arms raised, but um, you know, the safety of our fighters is, is absolutely paramount. Who's running all that uh, monitoring? Is that your job as the SNC coach? Yeah. So, I suppose. We can call it SNC, physical preparation. We'll call it whatever the hell yeah, we want. Yeah. So the role is head of performance. So right. I'll do anything I can. Something, Keith, my motto is above and beyond. I'll do anything I can that could potentially influence performance and influence the outcome. So if, if that so means that I have to do that and I'll do my research into that, um, if the fighter can't afford to you know, outsource that and find other people, then absolutely. Because if I'm trying to optimize all of these athletic qualities in the gym, strength, speed, and power, well, if my fighter's not rehydrated properly or not made the weight properly, we know that those qualities are not going to be um, you know, going to be optimized, don't we? So, uh, so yeah, I. Whose fault is that? Is that your fault, or like who? Like who's? Who's? T- is it the fighter wasn't following the plan, or was the plan wrong? Is that just a learning curve? Yeah, I think so. I think we. Because there's definitely no textbook for that, is there? There's no way no. to say this is what. I think you, there's there's a bit of research, but you need to blend the research and anecdotal, you know, real world experience, and also specificity for the fighter certain fighters Conor Ben for example as part of our taper strategy he'll want to 72 hours before a fight he'll want to do a short sharp taper session the literature supports that you know in terms of neuromuscular benefits super compensation providing you get the loading and volume right um, but then another fighter on that card Joe Cordina he didn't want to do that I'm then not going to say well look here's the research you got no you're a fighter that's boxed in Rio Olympics in, in 2016, who's now just won his 14th pro fight and is potentially going to fight for a world title. I can advise, but fundamentally, that and, and how much is he going to get out of that table session? Not not loads. That's cool, Joe. You rest up and chill. You know, uh, take your mind off everything. Connor, we go and do our thing because Connor's a very Type A male, million miles an hour. If he's sitting in a room by himself, he'll be losing his shit. So get him in there, do some basic work. So probably another question may be I'll dive into it if, if you'd like to know is in terms of what do we do on our taper strategy so our taper strategy we cut the volume again based on the research anywhere between 30 and 55 percent um, we tend to we do some jumps depending on weight cut but obviously again eccentric stress we're manipulating a lot of variables muscle glycogen stores are low because we're manipulating water we probably don't want the high eccentric stress of loaded jumps like trap bar jumps for example so we've utilized lately a lot of Alex Natera's work is overcoming isometrics uh, where we're getting the neuromuscular benefits we're getting the recruitment of high threshold motor units but we're not getting the negative impact of potentially creating peripheral muscular fatigue um, and that's a short sharp session it's a fun session we do extensive plyos like some pogos we might do some medicine ball work um, we might do some, uh, we look at joint angle specificity in terms of like split squat pin pulls for six second maximal ISO both legs. Um, we might do some contrast work depending on the fighter and, uh, and literally that's us. We do a bit of rotational work through the trunk and, uh, and yes, it, the fighters know it is sharpening the knife, stimulate not annihilate is something we say, you know. That's, that's very interesting because isometrics in... I assuming a lot of our listeners are, are, are our members, right? So they might they're not really performance okay. specific uh, things, but a lot of the principles that we probably ab- just send everyone to sleep there. So <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 not at all. Because I think a lot of coaches will get a lot yeah. of benefit from this as well. But um, a lot of the principles we apply in the classes and in the room, like people might not get it. It's like, oh, why are you doing a squat hold or why are you doing a, a an ISO lunge or, or something like that? And it is. Because Keith's massive on stress, he's, he's a big fan of kind of parasympathetic, sympathetic, yeah. and monitoring those loads and whatnot. Um, so it's very interesting to see how you guys um, are, are kind of looking out for that as well, especially really close to a fight. Uh, and we're looking out for 
our members at the same time putting in tempos and putting in ISO movements and stuff like that because one, it's super simple and mm. easy to coach and easy to learn, uh, but two, it gives them a break. Yeah. <laughs> and like none of our guys really get injured, touch wood, mm. you know, because we're not hammering them constantly day With in, load. day out. Yeah, it's yeah. just like, it's just stay there and don't move and it, it like the whole stress and 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 cycle it, mm. it's it's just very interesting there's just good comparisons there on the subject of that in terms of your listeners now I'll flip it back around so we're trying to drive physiological change in anything that we do to try and disrupt homeostasis right we know that okay so in this environment well, the one variable generally speaking people chase is load on the bar we'd probably agree okay more weight means i'm I'm eliciting progressive overload. I'm reaching a certain outcome. But unfortunately, as we know from you know training for a number of years, there comes a point when you just can't put more load on the bar. Mm. So how can we drive Speak for yourself, mate? <laughs> <laughs> so how can we drive that physiological change and progressive overload? Because that's what we're chasing, guys. And you're completely right. Is either overcoming isometrics or what you said there is some yielding isometrics, some changing as of tempo mm. instead of going from like a well manipulation of eccentric tempo as well you know four second eccentrics i'm sure the guys listening anyone who you know comes in into the the training room class here um physical no you're right training room room, yeah yeah. (laughs) Uh, sorry (laughs) and um and it is that it's like four if if one of the guy coaches says come down for four seconds and hold for three seconds in that 1990 split squat position well you better believe that's bloody hard you know sometimes harder than doing like a 20 kilo goblet load at like a single yeah, tempo you know? sure, so yeah. completely agree I have one question back on the boxing the tapering what happens if you miss weight right Where, where's the wood okay touch wood I've never missed weight in I've worked in I've been a coach 15 and a half years I've worked at the elite level of boxing for 8 years I've never missed weight um, I don't intend to we put a lot into it you know there's, there's no guesswork Keith honestly but like I take immense pride in my fighters making weight um, you do get it depends on you know the level of the fight um, you do get let's say it's a world title fight for example so lots on the line you'll get I think with certain governing bodies uh, a certain turnaround to make weight if you're within a certain amount you know okay. like more time before the a next weight weigh, t- and, weigh exactly. in again and, and like there you go an, an hour an hour or something like that um, so what would you do then you hit, so was there a sauna nearby would yeah, you put me in a sweatsuit you'd, you'd have to have every, yeah exactly you'd have to have everything lined up it'd probably be similar to what you'd normally do to cut weight to, to make that and have that any of the opponents that you guys have been up against missed weight yes um, ooh so let me let me ask you another thing is the fight not going to happen now? The fight can happen, providing they make weight at the second attempt. So and sometimes, if he doesn't, if he's still off? If they are relatively close, and let's say he's half a pound out or a pound out, and sometimes that might sound crazy, you'd be like, hey, get that off. But these guys are so dry at the mm. weight. Um, they've done all they can to make it. If it's, let's say, for an IBF world title, then the world title will be only be on the line for the guy who's made weight and not the guy who didn't. Ah, really? And he'd also have to relinquish some of his purse as well. Um, so that that would be you know what what would occur? Who gets the who gets the relinquished piece? I think the I think the, the fighter who made weight. I oh think, really? Yeah. yeah. Don't quote me on that. But sometimes I think the other day I heard one. There was a guy who missed weight by like a ludicrous amount. It was like nine pounds or something. So someone stepped in at, a ve- at the very last minute. It was where was it? It was in Dubai. I felt pretty sure it was in Dubai on the Sunny Edwards card. Um, was that the fight stuff that was recently? Maybe yeah. Don was running that. I'll get back to you on that, but he missed very it. Very recently, a or no, literally last week. Yeah, okay. the night prior to Conor Ben's fight, so it would have been December the 11th. I'm pretty sure that was in Dubai. Anyway, um, yeah, I can't recall the exact. Dubai will do that to you. <laughs> <laughs> but there's that nights. as well. There's that as well. If you're an external fighter coming into a new place, so we've had fights. You know, this year I've thankfully worked with the undisputed champion of the world, Josh Taylor, an incredible fighter who went to. We went to Vegas. We trained at the UFC Performance Institute. We were there for five and a half weeks. And on May the 23rd, he won the biggest prize in boxing. All of the belts, basically. That's what's undisputed. You cannot dispute it against Jose Ramirez, two undefeated fighters. We went into the lion's den. Everyone was just rooting for the other guy. A load of Mexicans and Americans in there. And Josh just put on an incredible performance, put him down twice. And it went to the scorecard. It was still very close, which was ludicrous. But thankfully, the right man won. And uh, so we, again, we had to factor that in, that we're going to a new place. There's going to be a different climate. There's going to be the food available may be different. So these are things that you absolutely have to factor in. You know, we don't leave any stone unturned in terms of preparation. Okay, so then wind it back to 
the kind of Joe public who gets involved in a white collar boxing fight, yeah. right? Because I had a, I had a guy in the last few months, um, s- slim, tall guy, right? Mm. And he was going to do his conditioning work with the organizers of the event a couple of times a week. Do you know, he's going to do his technical stuff. He's going to do his sparring, his pr- whatever. But he's coming. It, he changed from wanting to gym, tr- specific, um, do traditional gym training to, to power generation. Mm. And he's not a particularly powerful guy, you know, so it's hard to see if we're making any actual... He's not moving particularly fast in space, you know, yeah. compared to how your guys would actually be, mm. like, terrifyingly fast. Mm. You know, if you get, give one of your boys a med ball, oh. you want to get out of the way of it. <laughs> yeah. Like, but he's this guy... And not just this guy, but the general Joe public. Mm. What are the start... I could have done with this conversation t- four months ago. Mm. What are the starting points for the biggest wins with the Joe public? Yeah. Someone who's particularly fit, let's just say, but not boxing fit. Firstly, look at the needs analysis of the sport. So my guys are looking at, uh, you know, 12 three-minute rounds. So the bioenergetic cost is, is slightly different to something that's such high octane. Might be, what, three twos, three two-minute like rounds, yeah. Yeah. Short, short, yeah? So there's that as well. So, yeah, you need an engine. You need to, you know, the size of the engine, build the aerobic capacity. He did win, by the way. No, just say that. There you go. <laughs> love that. That's all we do. Kick up the Ws. Love it. Um, so, look, build... Um, one for one. <laughs> <laughs> Drop the mic. Um, <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, build the size of the engine initially, and uh, and then you can kind of work through through different kinds of bioenergetic demands based on the sport uh, you know glycolytic and then you know anaerobic and so on and so forth but with that fundamentally white collar for me stems from how conditioned are you because someone might be a better technical boxer for the first round but if you've got an engine you can ride weather the storm so to speak then you can jump on them you know in round two and round three and win that fight i think some low-hanging fruits are you know build a preparatory phase of program as we would with anyone you know general physical preparedness preparation whatever you like to call it Uh, 15 20 reps basic fundamental movement patterns push pull hinge knee dominant patterns build some trunk stability as well you know if we're looking at okay how are we going to optimize punch power well we look at transfer of energy from foot to fist through the kinetic chain then we can look at what's involved through that whole sequencing you know if they're lacking in range of motion through the hip so they can't internally rotate that hip and transfer through hip extension then that's going to be an issue because they're not going to be able to get generate power through there if for example every time their foot strikes the floor they're bleeding energy because they've got no stiffness through the muscular tendon unit no capacity through the calf well that's going to be an issue if you step back out of range and try and transfer with a counter but your foot spent about three minutes on the floor as opposed to boom boom being springy and reactive like a kangaroo well that's something we can influence in the gym so that might be extensive plyometrics it might be some bias work on um, lower limb compliance through gastroc through soleus and just really overload that so you can kind of look at somewhere like a jigsaw you can look at these little pieces that work through the chain then you look at the trunk okay if all you're doing is ab crunches a million times a day we know in the western world and boxing being a an anteriorly dominant sport that just doing a million crunches is probably not going to be the best thing to do we want to be looking at building sufficient robustness and uh, stability through the midline so you're not bleeding energy as you're looking to transfer up through the chain and then you can look at little things like you know what what's the triceps role well people wouldn't think about targeting a tricep in boxing well it extends the elbow joint it improves impulse it improves snap through your shots so there's there's a number of different things I get that specific, so let me come back around. No, no, in no terms that's great. Like no, I, no, I've got like five questions coming off all of that. Yeah. Are you training that for running up to the fight? Are you mm. training that for speed and power? Like, are you lightening it and getting them to move as fast yeah. as you can? So a general broad overview that, that may, again, probably better answer your question, Keith, would be go through a preparatory phase of training. The duration of that phase depends on how long you have firstly. Mm-hmm. If you have an eight-week camp, it might only be two weeks. If you have a 12-week camp, it might be four weeks. But it also depends on where the athlete comes at that point whether we have to go through four weeks of fat camp or whether they've been following the out-of-camp program Mm -hmm. and they're ready to attack right away. So that would be the preparatory phase. For your listeners, that might be 15 to 20 reps of those fundamental movements that I mentioned there. That is very much building the foundations, okay? We know that, yes, if we want to build strength and power, it doesn't therefore mean on day one you start loading them up with some heavy trap bar deadlifts, you know, at 85-plus percent of max uh, 1RM because they're going to break down they're not going to have the the sufficient tolerance to deal with that stress if we're going back to the stress management point of view so build the foundations then you might move into sometimes strength and hypertrophy phase but again we're governed by making weight so if we want to you know I have only a couple of times had the the luxury of building a bit of tissue, so building a bit of muscle with fighters because we're governed by making weight. So if we're looking at a hypertrophy phase to improve muscle cross-sectional area, um, that would only happen with, I did it once with Dion Juma, we're looking at doing it now with Craig Richards, 
uh, one light heavyweight and one cruiserweight. Uh, and then we'd go into looking at more of a strength-based phase. So generally speaking, it's GPP, strength, so raise the upper limit of force production. Um, we know that you know power outcomes are influenced by force. Uh, for your listeners, an easy analogy here would be raising the horsepower in a car's engine. If you're driving a Nissan Micra one-litre engine, well, we know that uh, you know if you just do a load of explosive power work, that's like putting spinners on a Nissan Micra. You, know, you haven't influenced the size or horsepower of the engine, you just glam the car up not to my taste, but you glam the car up a little bit. If we can raise the engine from a one liter to a 1.8 or a two liter engine, well, that means we're raising up a limit of force production. We then have the emphasis on this word potential to then produce more power as we surf down the force velocity curve and do more explosive ballistic movements that are going to influence rate of force development. Because one thing I'll say, guys, as well, it's not just about how much force you can produce. We're not power lifters here. We haven't got an infinite time to get from A to B under heavy loads. It's how much force you can produce and then how quickly you can mm. produce that force. So the rate that you produce that force is, is absolutely paramount. So some quick wins for your guys might be get them stronger. Before you start focusing on all this explosive med ball work, I'd still be dosing some extensive pliers in your warm-ups. Get them you know, used to dorsiflexing the ankle, being springy and reactive on the floor, and then work through the plyometric continuum as you build some strength capacity. So that's the, definitely that's the piece of the puzzle that I missed was that floor ground reaction force. Mm. But I was working primarily upper body and core we had a quite a bit of foundational fundamental strength because mm. he was heavy on his leg training all summer because nice. he was doing his upper body by himself uh, and then we moved into core upper body just trying to generate power but I, if you're listening Matt sorry pal <laughs> we, <laughs> we missed the ground hey. reaction for us plyometrics uh, picks up the I'll W tell, I'll tell you what W please so thank you um, and, and I know I'll say this because I know we've had conversations about it it all sounds rather complex when you because it's, there's so many considerations, right? But ultimately, simplicity is genius, right? So if you can simplify and break down the movements as simple as possible to the requirements that they need at that point in time of their program, so you say you focus on fundamental movement skills at the start of the program and then probably get a bit more specific yep. towards fight time. We're still not doing complex movements. And uh, like... Let's say we follow you on Instagram, Dan. Like you're doing nothing sexy except when your tops off. <laughs> but we're doing, we're doing in terms of in the gym, we're doing nothing sexy on the dance floor. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. But then you look at all the stuff that's going on behind. That's where the some I suppose complexities come in. And I suppose for our guys and maybe some coaches listening, it is about taking all the considerations into place and giving them something that works for them that's not going to create too much stress that they can achieve in a simple manner and however complex it sounds it's actually rather simple i think that is <coughs> the best way of putting it chris to be yeah. honest and that's the concern i've got is the social media look it's great you know i do showcase some of the work we do with the athletes and i get some lovely messages from people some support you know some some great Yes, yeah, so just some great feedback. But my concern on the other side of that coin is that they'll then they'll then try and imitate and copy and they haven't really understood the process that you have to go through to earn the right to actually do these types of, like you say, specific movements. We build general capacity uh, and general qualities and then we move into more of a specific model. And that specific model might only come into you know, the taper phase of the last couple of weeks of camp where we're doing, you know, explosive medicine ball releases. Medicine balls are great in boxing guys because they have no deceleration component. You can literally punch through the target. You can mimic the shots uh, that you're going to be doing. As it, but fundamentally, like we spoke about a minute ago there, was unless you're linking properly through the kinetic chain and your sequencing is right, then why are you going to be doing a movement that has that amount of specificity if you're just bleeding energy as you throw that shot? So, yeah, completely right. And, yeah, the intricacies and complexity and science, I suppose, can come from outside of that in terms of weight making. And in the gym, you know, guys, that's pretty simple. Like, we're looking at if we want to drive force production, a trap bar deadlift might be, might be our go-to option. Remember, an exercise is just a means to drive a physiological adaptation. I don't care if you're back squatting or trap bar deadlifting or, or whatever else you're, you're doing, as long as it's driving that change. We'll do that in the most safe and effective way. Looking at specifics of an exercise, though, if we're looking at general inboxing, these individuals have 
forward head posture, lack of T-spine extension, uh, lack of shoulder ER, external rotation, quite tight through pet minor, influence bound and down through the lats. Well, I'm probably not then because they're presenting themselves with this kind of anterior, um, anterior pelvic tilt extension-based posture. I'm probably not going to dump 150 kilo bar on their back because it's like putting a square peg in a round hole just to drive force production qualities. I'm probably, and I do, going to use something like a trap bar deadlift from the blocks if anthropometry, limb length, femurs length, femur length, whatever. Um, I'm probably going to do that because, again, an athlete's best ability is their availability, risk-reward continuum. That exercise would drive that adaptation in the most safe and effective way. It's difficult, though, to look at your Instagram because you're dealing with the top-level guys. Mm. You know, like the, the force to generate, the, <coughs> the speed of the force that they're generating looks nothing like even what I could do. You know, having yeah. been, I know what I'm doing, but I'm not powerful fast. Mm. So, look, I got, like, I went onto your page straight away, and I was like, "This is no good to me because mm. these boys are very different, dude. This yeah. is a different aspect of their physiology that you're training. I've got." You know, you're 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 an office worker. You know, he yeah. works in literally white collar. So he's he's not got that rate of force, to st- or he's not got that foundation. He's got a bit, but the exercise selection and stuff, it's just not gonna mm. it's not gonna translate. Um, I think on that, Keith, intent drives adaptation. So irrespective of whether my guys are looking like they're lifting it faster, you know, with greater forces, whatever. Start where your feet are. Start where you stand. You know, identify exactly which I know you would have anyway. Identify exactly where he's at. Identify the needs analysis, identify the qualities we're trying to influence. And it might be, if one of my guys doing a 200 kilo trap bar deadlift, that doesn't mean he's got to replicate that. He might be doing a 100 kilo trap bar deadlift. But as long as we're lifting it in a way of A to B with maximal intent, stay tight, put force into the ground and rip that load up with the maximal intent, we know intent drives adaptation. You're going to recruit high threshold motor units and you're going to improve athletic qualities. So I think like with my training, like you say, it's not flash. Yes, the guys execute it like absolute monsters, but that's been a process. These guys in the weight room, their training age now is is probably, I'd say, moderate. But when we started, and I've been head of performance and matchroom for it's actually four years, nearly to the day. I think it was January uh, four years ago, and um, they some of the Dubai that week. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I was. I, I remember when we did the podcast. You know, we had a chat. Me, you, and Alex. I think you were starting. That. Yes. Yeah, it was. Because Alex hadn't left yet. Yeah, that's it. And um, Shout out Alex Lee. <laughs> I actually caught up with him a few weeks ago. He's uh, he's with Ealing Trailfinders yeah, now. I think. Yeah, he's well. doing well, mate. Turn the mics off. You can dish the dirt on him. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, so I think like with the track, like keep it simple. So anyone listening, follow the KISS approach. Keep it simple, stupid. Identify what you're trying to achieve. It's not a one-size-fits-all approach. Just because you're working in boxing or combat sports doesn't mean you've got to make it look like the movement. Like The best way to improve the sport is do the sport. What we're trying to do in a gym-based environment is to improve the athletic qualities that are going to assist with the sport. On that as well, um, <coughs> maybe more important for coaches listening or maybe some of our, our members who are a bit more interested in, in taking some ownership of their own program but I think far too often people get distracted by the shiny exercise selection and oh I've saw th- I've seen this or I saw this combination or blah 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 whereas it's the underlying I suppose theory behind why you're choosing a certain type of movement that then dictates the exercise selection yeah right absolutely. so um i think a lot of people bypass that mm. which and it's it's a foundational kind of thing that we need to really as coaches stick by uh, to understand the biomechanical requirements of a particular movement in whenever we choose to have that and that's why we choose that exercise or based off the needs analysis this person requires a technical correction mm. because of x y and z this is why we choose this movement pattern not the exercise yeah. i think biomechanical physiological but also for the listeners i think an easy way irrespective of whether you're a coach or an everyday athlete who wants to learn a little bit more about training is a simple analogy on this would be like a mountain analogy you don't reach the summit without climbing the mountain you've got to earn the right to progress so the top of that mountain might be all the bells and whistles let's say a trap bar jump under load um and so i'm just laughing because we talked a lot about mountains and chris failed to climb the the latest mountain we were on (laughs) Earning rights and <laughs> we're not allowed to talk about that oh in this right, podcast. Apologies. Go on, anyway. I did do my research. That was a low blow. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so a mountain. Uh, sorry, an analogy I like to use is uh, a pyramid analogy. No longer a mountain, <laughs> and um, you don't reach the. T- <laughs> but um, but yeah, look, the top of the mountain might be you know X exercise. 
but you've got to so let's say it is let's say it's a, a trap bar jump under 60 percent of of one rm right which we know you know that's a pretty tough movement you've got to execute that properly and you've got to earn the right to get there well if someone's not proficient in a hinging action so the first exercise at the bottom of the mountain might be a three-point dow drill how does someone hinge box ticked next one might be a cable pull through box ticked next one might be a kettlebell deadlift from a block shorter range of motion box ticked next one kettlebell deadlift from the floor increased range of motion box ticked next one might be a rack pull working through the hinge pattern but under load next one might be a trap bar deadlift loaded from the blocks next one might be a trap bar deadlift from the floor now you can look at producing great force development with the trap bar deadlift now we're at the top of the mountain so you can see it's a step-by-step approach and you've got to earn the right to progress for sure yeah yeah, Chris nearly got there. <laughs> taking a bike to mountains. <laughs> Stop it. We're done. Um, <laughs> We're done. I'm out. Yeah, so do you only work with elite people or do you work with any like Joseph's? You're based out of London, yeah? I am. Just because of current times, Keith, I, I haven't coached general population clients for a while. I have a company called Mayfair Elite Coaching as well, which works with sort of high net worth individuals in the heart of London. Um, we do blood analysis, physiological profile of people who want to train like elite level athletes. We have the best practitioners around in London to, to take care of them, you know, do outcome led packages similar to the elite athletes. But um, that's kind of been shelved because of current times and a lot of my work now is done online. So um, Because of COVID or because you're busy boxing? Do you know what? COVID was careful with my words here but COVID was a blessing for me personally in terms of my business um, certainly not everything else but um, it gave me the kick up the backside I needed to move everything online and create more passive income streams and I do a lot of performance managing for people so everyday athletes and elite level athletes I work with a number of Premier League footballers um, and and obviously the boxers as well so yeah the roles I take now are more performance management as opposed to actual in-person coaching do any of those high net worth guys get in the ring um, have I had one for You should organize a high net worth white collar box. <laughs> <laughs> well, see how, see how wild it gets. <gasps> there was a Bitcoin one out here, wasn't was there? there? A crypto, crypto, yeah, someone reached out for me to coach him for that. It, it didn't come into fruition. He, he worked with one of my friends out here, uh, a boxing coach, actually. I set him up. He came out a couple of weeks before the event, and uh, that was your glorified white collar that uh, for, for the higher net worth, and I think it was paid in crypto. So, anyway, <laughs> um, yeah, crazy. I love it. Current times. But, uh, but no, I, have, I haven't for a while. But again, honestly, Keith, I, I would really irrespective of whether they're elite and boxing for you know world titles or they're everyday athletes and they want to tick a, a box and bucket list uh, the the methods would be very similar and i jokingly say when you touched on kind of autonomic state and parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system without going too in depth is i call us stress management coaches you know we literally are we just manage stress you know are we optimizing sleep are we fueling correctly for the sessions are we getting the right stress at the right time from a training point of view if they're in a chronically stressed environment do we then want to add huge amounts of training stress on top of that no because we're not going to drive adaptation so we look at things you know like hrv we look at you know uh, sleep uh, and anything that can feed into that outcome so um so yeah irrespective of whether an elite athlete or an everyday athlete it's uh, it is the same we uh, we touched on that recently as well. Um, I find, <coughs> and Keith finds, two completely different demographics of member that will come in to see us with different requirements. However, I'm not chasing adaptations with my guys. Very, very rarely am I chasing adaptations. And Keith is 100% managing a psychological component to an injury more than anything else. Yeah. Yeah, so it's really interesting that you say that. You, yes, you are a stress management coach for sure, and you're probably dealing with much finer uh, variables or variations. However, we're dealing with a completely different type of stress, mm. and stress is stress, as we know, yeah. right? So uh, we may be dealing with CEOs or mothers or you know somebody who's I don't know struggling financially or whatever it might be. We're not. We're not going to load them up. <laughs> the yes, come on in, do a session, yeah, and maybe. work around seventy yeah. percent, and and don't wreck yourself. Yeah. And I'm never going to push you until you come to me and say, I want to be pushed Today, extremely. Day, yeah. yeah, yeah. And then, but ultimately, we're just in here. And I've said to Keith, we're probably psychologists. Same, same, right? Psychologists or stress management coaches or whatever. Like we're 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 probably. N- not so much in the fitness industry. Does that make sense? <laughs> like makes fitness sense. industry or fitness and training is a tool for us to help people probably overcome something else. 
Yeah. Fitness is one variable. So fitness yeah. is here, but then performance and lifestyle for me is above that. And that comes into everything else that we've just spoken about. And something we say in the gym is very much like a micro dosing strategy. We give them a little bit of a stimulus at the right time because the stress bucket is one bucket and yeah. everything goes into that bucket. You know, whether you've broken up with your your spouse or you've got work, high work stress and financial issues, that all goes into that bucket. We are not, and as speaking to two guys who are absolutely well-versed in the, in the training space, we're then not going to say, you've got to be married to this program. We're doing five sets of five at 85% max load because they are going to crumble. I've seen, I've seen people's programs that are so complex. And it's quick. Most of them, I don't know, I'll go and say, most of them come out of the Charles Pollockin school of thought. <laughs> Percentages here and eccentrics here and half a rep here and 15 of those. And Jesus, and just 45 seconds before you've even put the... Pick the weight up, do you know? Is this before or after German volume training? Ten sets and ten. As long as there's a <laughs> there's a heavy prowler and some chains, <laughs> and we're good to go. But yeah, it does get a bit wild and wacky. I think I think some people hunt that though. Like you, one of the things you said earlier, when the easiest way for people to measure their progress is just a simple weight. What's the weight on the bar? When can I go heavy? It's like, well, you can when you can. I don't know when. And we have that same conversation in different formats with different. With people in the public they expect themselves to be able to f go, you know, go flying and yeah. I haven't been able to do three sessions a week for the last six months it's like alright well at least you've stopped yourself from going backwards you know so mm. that's about all you can do until you sort your workout until you sort your sleep out yeah and uh, can we touch on you said what the textbooks say you mentioned Charles Poliquin and schools of thought and stuff like that one of my pet peeves is and I'm going to say it, people chasing educational letters after their name, it drives me bananas. And because compare that to somebody who's had all the experience in the world uh, and probably backs up their work by science for sure, like that's very important, but you see people, it's great that people are chasing education, but they chase it and then come out with ego and arrogance to and I was probably there and like you were probably there and I'm sure you were there as well in your early stages of your career but it takes time to kind of drop that ego a little bit and understand that probably what the textbooks and literature say are one thing for a certain demographic at a certain period of time in a very controlled environment whereas we're dealing with a very different thing in human. a very different scenario very different human, at yeah. a very different time um so yeah i don't know what you guys make of that you don't learn what by the sounds of things you guys are doing you don't learn that in a textbook on a course or you know university it's uh, <laughs> i think you use the word psychology it really is it's human psychology and you've got to learn that um, and that can come from how verse well versed you are with your reading with the literature with the podcast and so on i am big on education but i'm big on identifying the right people to learn from to listen to and then be a sponge and absorb um for me it's the kind of carol dueck from 30 years ago research of growth mindset versus fixed mindset is are you saying no because i've got x and y i'm now i've made it i know everything well that's very much a fixed mindset because i'll tell you what guys every single day is a school day for me and i i still get imposter syndrome now 15 and a half years in and working with the numerous world champions that i've worked with because i'll always learn i'll i think over the last week i've bought three books i, I bought them here to dubai and i'm excited to dive into them because there's always something that you can you can learn and someone who you can learn from so i'll never push someone away who wants to learn and I, i'm that guy and i've been that guy with other practitioners over the years so um I think you've just got to continue trying to learn, trying to be a sponge and absorb. And I think you should use the word arrogance there. I, yeah, you see it. And, you know, if you go down solely in the route of academia, again, broad overview is sometimes they're not the best communicators. I, I think for me, you need to blend, you know, the latest research. I still read the latest research for sure. Um, but you take what you can from that. And you might not take it as gospel because then you need to blend that with anecdotal real world experience. And if you can merge the two, then you're onto something. Because by the way, sometimes as well, like, you know, I'll <laughs> deliver a high volume of, uh, of coaching sessions with elite level athletes. I might see things that, and yes, I track objectively, you know, I get, you know, I use accelerometers, velocity-based training and other things. We look at HRV. So I'm using that and I, I can be developing my systems prior to any research that might actually be out there. We may be ahead of the curve in certain instances, but in the same breath, I think if you can merge the two, 
if you're looking at a very simplistic continuum of anecdotal on one end and then on the other end the research you know if you're solely looking at the research then you're probably missing something but then if you're solely looking at no this is the way i do it this is the way i've always done it then again you probably should be more well versed on what these experts are doing in the lab and and, and doing with their control group so i think somewhere between the middle it needs to be uh, for me anyway yeah yeah, one of the things I remember from our first conversation was you were very self-deprecating on yourself and your own experience. And I remember having the thoughts of like, man, look at what you're doing, you know, and you've done it through the self-educating, grafting, anecdotal research, you know, as opposed to the people who come out and they're all high and mighty with their evidence-based practices, you know. Um, I don't think you'll ever get away from it. I think it's probably a feature of all industries you know like the law industry must have people who are only solely on the previous cases this this and this when they don't realize that there's there's nuances um i don't know i think it's probably something you're gonna have to just, just deal with there's mm. gonna be people and eventually you either grow out of it or you sink do you know yeah it's like you either realize that like if you have a master's in the narrow field of discipline that you spend two years studying well, it doesn't tell you how to deal with someone who's got that issue, but then, or that has those needs, but also compounded by family grief, financial loss. You know, who, who's your case study and now? Who's the new case study? It's completely different. And if you've been buried in books for 10 years, mm. you don't know how to talk to people. You don't know how to see it from their perspective, and you, you're going to get it wrong. They don't teach you context, do they? Which is probably the most important yeah. thing to the consider. They don't the amount of different types of people <coughs> that show up, you know, and how some are people are the same, and then six months in, you realize, oh my God, I didn't know you had that about you. Like that's that explains the last six months of why you are this particular way. Do you know that thing from your past? Mm. Call it trauma. Call it success. Call it failure. Whatever. Like oh, now it took me this long to realize why this has been a feature of our interactions. Call it whatever. What you want. And that can come from asking the right questions as well, which again, you cannot get from a textbook. Like you have to upskill on that and understand again, human psychology to peel the onion back further, unless you're pushing on those pain points to for the, someone to open up and actually voice that to you, uh, then you're really not gonna make long-term sustainable change. So yeah, it's a, as they say, it's, it's an art and a science, yeah. you know, it's merging of the two, so yeah. Cool, all right, well on that note, uh, Dan, where can people follow you online? What, what's your what are your handles you've got a whole load it seems <laughs> instagram will probably be the best and uh, it's perform so p-e-r-f-o-r-m 365 the numbers i've also got another page uh, everyday athlete 365 as well for the people still listening who want to know which one is the one that you're taking your shirt off on perform through well, both <laughs> <laughs> he knows <laughs> both i get to know all over the place all right thank you very much dan good to see you and enjoy the rest of your time in dubai Cheers, guys. Thanks Cheers, for having mate. me. Thank you.